Hello. We're coming to the end of our second series of our podcast, and we're quite pleased with how it's going so far. I hope you are. Thanks to all of you who have financially supported us, and please do consider doing so if you haven't, if you want to keep us going. Remember, you can do this easily by using the link in the description of this programme. Making this programme has been quite an education, and we now wonder if a rebrand is in order. Apart from being somewhat egotistical, is our title too limiting and off-putting? We do mostly love the BBC and passionately support public service broadcasting in general, but we also want to cast our eye over the entire media landscape. So please send in your ideas for a renaming. Bolton on broadcasting, perhaps, or bonkers Bolton, or Bolton bollocks. Uh, Well, perhaps not. You see, we need some inspiration. Do let us know your thoughts. Well, this week finally saw the publication of the long-awaited draft media bill. A huge sigh of relief from public service broadcasters who have welcomed some much-awaited changes. The bill confirms prominence plans for public service broadcasters and brings Netflix, Amazon Prime Video and Disney Plus under new Ofcom rules to ensure public service broadcasters' on-demand services are easy to discover on smart TVs and streaming sticks. New reforms will also guarantee access to UK radio on smart speakers. But one of the potential downsides to the bill, in our view, is that Channel 4 will be allowed to make some of its own programmes. Now, that's a departure from the founding ethos of the channel, and it might impact on the independent production ecosystem, though the government has committed to raising the level of Channel 4's independent production quota. Something will have to give. The bill also reduces the quotas for public service broadcasters, giving them more flexibility, which I think isn't good news if we want to support areas of broadcasting such as religion and classical music, which could lose out. Let's see what happens as the bill makes its way through Parliament. So, on to our interview for this week, and I'm delighted to be joined by one of Britain's finest reporters, Peter Taylor. A Watch fan described him as a proper journalist, and he certainly is, with numerous books, documentaries and awards spanning a career of over 50 years. He's known mainly for his coverage of the troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, but he also carried out investigations into al-Qaeda and Islamic extremism, as well as covering such issues as smoking and health. And aged 81, he isn't slowing down. This week he's just published his book, Operation Chiffon, The Secret Story of MI5 and MI6 and the Road to Peace in Ireland. And a documentary based on the book has just been broadcast on BBC Two. Now, Operation Chiffon was the code name of the top-secret MI5 operation of back-channel communications between the UK government and the leadership of the IRA in pursuit of an end to violence. Negotiations were conducted on the British side by an MI5 operative known as Robert, but in 1993 were almost derailed because of the Warrington bombings carried out by the IRA. Now, Robert has talked for the first time, to Peter, of course, about how those negotiations were put back on track, and it involved Robert disobeying orders. Well, welcome to the podcast, Peter Taylor. Uh, How did you feel when you received that letter from Robert saying he was finally willing to talk about what happened? I couldn't believe it. I'd been trying to make contact with and ideally interview the man I came to know as Robert for 25 years. I initially met him after searching for him for about 10 years when he denied he was who he was. He looked me straight in the eye and said, 
you've got the wrong man. So I thought I'd failed. And then 20 years later, that was back in 1999 when I was doing the, the Brit series for the BBC. And then 20 years later, I get this letter completely out of the blue. And I open it and I, I couldn't believe it. It began, dear Mr. Taylor, you may remember me, but I'm now in a position to fill in any gaps that you may have because three things have happened, tragically. Uh, three people have died, Martin McGuinness, Brendan Duddy. The businessman who was the great link between the IRA and the British Intelligence Services, both MI6 and MI5. And crucially, my wife has died. The reason why that was important for Robert is that his wife could not abide him working in Northern Ireland. She was always worried that one day he may not come home again and she wouldn't talk about it. She didn't want to know about it. And when she discovered that I had actually doorstepped her husband in the pouring rain all those years ago in 1999, she was absolutely horrified. She was terrified. I mean, I remember you know, my late wife, Sue, whom you knew well, Roger, uh, she was concerned about me working in Northern Ireland. I mean, the, the risks were minimal, but the risks were there. So because those three key people in his life and in his, quote, story had all passed away, he now felt in a position to fill in some of the gaps. But, I mean, he's a professional, he's a professional liar. He had to be a professional liar to do the job he did. Uh, was there a sense in which he regretted lying to you or that he wanted his place in history or that somehow he just wanted to get the truth out finally? I mean, do we know which of those it is? I think it's a combination of three of them. I think he wanted to get his get his story out there because he thought it had been misrepresented in the media. I think also he wanted his place in history. I mean, Michael Oakley, the MI6 officer who was his predecessor, agreed to be interviewed by me, as did his predecessor, Frank Steele. Again, full face to camera. And I think he thought, well, there's another piece of history that people don't know about, and that's my piece of history. And I think it would be interesting and important that people know what went in to helping make, and note the words helping to make, the Good Friday Agreement possible. So, And do you think there was an element also, and I don't know whether this is true or not, that Frank Steele and Michael Oakley were MI6, and Robert is MI5, and I think it wasn't until 1992, I think, that MI5 took over, basically, the respond main, main role in Northern Ireland. There's a bit of, well, my service needs to get some credit as well. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there were... There were great tensions between MI6 and MI5, and MI6 in particular, Michael Oakley, were really fed up when MI5 under Stella Remington, when, when, when Stella Remington was DG or about to become DG, gave overall responsibility for Irish terrorism away from Special Branch in Northern Ireland and, and in the Metropolitan Police and handed it over to MI5. So there was a lot of inter-service rivalry there, which, which <laughs> you know, still exists to us. Yeah, and you had to negotiate. I mean, I just just briefly before we then go back about the priest process and the detail of this, I mean, it's extraordinary. When you and I first met in uh, 1980, I think, 81, um, I, I, on Panorama, I had the great, great good fortune to, to have you walk through the door and say you'd like to work on Panorama. I was also trying 
to do, and we did, a couple of programmes by MI5 and MI6, who have then, of course, officially didn't exist. Their budgets weren't checked. There was no Commandment Oversight Committee. And, you know, it was we did two not very good programmes, but at least, you know, as there were programmes about organisations that didn't exist, they weren't bad. This situation in which suddenly they are talking to you, they're on, they have their own website and so on, is a, is a massive change. But was it actually... You know, when did you first in Northern Ireland have members of the security service or the secret services prepared to talk to you in some way? How far back did that go? As far as uh, MI5 were concerned, it went back quite a long way. But the relationship was one of trying to check certain things. Like when I investigated the so-called shoot to kill policy, I don't believe there was actually a policy as such, but looking at certain controversial incidents that I reported for you, Roger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I, got, I got virtually no help at all because they wouldn't comment. So things have changed, how can I say dramatically, but th- yes, they have. When From those days when you made those two programmes, when I first joined you on Panorama, to where we are now with their website, which is also a sort of recruiting place for you know, for anybody who wants to join, who's got the potential to do what is necessary, is a sea change. And obviously, I getting the book cleared to make sure that there was no risk to Robert, hence he was anonymized in, in the film, and also that there was no risk to national security was a very complicated process. And I can't go into the detail of it, but suffice it to say... I was extremely careful. Uh, There were certain things in there that might have jeopardised national security, I think. I took notice of what I was advised to take notice about. So, you know, the relationship has changed beyond recognition. And it was remarkable that I managed to get the book out and even more remarkable, the television programme. And I think that's because attitudes attitudes have changed because they realise that the service... MI5, the security service, is now operating in the 21st century. And I think the adjustments it has made have been have been massive, massive. Uh, and, uh, and I think long overdue and necessary. And yet there is a sense in which uh, I thought the intelligence services, from my more, much more limited experience compared to you, the intelligence services are always quite a way ahead of the politicians. I mean, I remember, uh, of course, a whole range of intelligence services operating in Northern Ireland, but you will remember, and I remember, even back in 1979, Brigadier Glover, who was running, I think, Army Intelligence, briefing us all, and I I wasn't in the same room as you, but briefing us all about the reality of what was happening in Northern Ireland. And the same time, we just had Roy Mason as the Labour Minister saying we're winning, and we just had Mrs Thatcher coming to power and we're going to crush them. Um, uh, Brigadier Glover was saying three things very clearly. One is, nobody can win this war. The IRA we can't win it. We can't win it. We can't stop the violence. They cannot increase it massively. There has to be a political solution. Pause. End of. 1979. So we are being told this by the intelligence sources, and we also know, as you've demonstrated, they're, they're talking to everybody. But there's a gap between that and the ability or willingness of politicians both in Northern Ireland and on the mainland to make any moves. So the intelligence services must have got incredibly frustrated, didn't they? They certainly did. And I think the distinction you make between what the intelligence services 
were saying amongst themselves and what they were actually telling their political masters, the government of the day, were the same. That, and this is one of the things I, one of the themes I cover in the book, that the people like Brigadier Glover, whom I, whom I knew very well and interviewed him for you for for that panorama, uh, was ahead of his time. But he was reflecting the attitude of certain senior members in the intelligence services in in the army, and certainly both in MI6 and in MI5. They recognised, and we're now talking about the late 1970s and onwards, that there was no military solution and therefore there had to be a political solution. So there was always this gap, this vast this chasm between what the intelligence services, in- including military intelligence as well as five and six, were thinking and telling government, telling ministers, and what ministers were saying publicly and actually believing, because Mrs Thatcher and those around her did believe that the IRA could be defeated. And she thought that they were defeated in the hunger strike. I mean, the hunger strike is the sort of centerpiece of the history. The hunger strike was responsible for the rise of Sinn Féin and a whole lot of other things. But also during the hunger strike, you know, Michael Oakley and Brendan Duddy were saying publicly and privately, this is a disaster. And of course, they were right when Bobby Sands was elected. The government was saying that the IRA and Sinn Féin had very limited support and the hunger strike and Bobby Sands' election as a Westminster MP just drove a coach and horses through that. But you've got a situation then when there isn't a political dialogue or there are ministers in government like Douglas Hurd and William Whitelaw and some of the others who are rather more sensitive or understanding about these issues. But you've got still consistently... The intelligence services, not just obviously trying to find out who's doing what, whether there are bombing campaigns or whatever, but also listening to whether the attitudes are changing within the paramilitary groups and particularly the IRA Sinn Féin and whether there is any serious movement towards uh, having a ceasefire and so on. Just before I go back to the IRA, on the government side, do you think that Mrs Thatcher and others like her deliberately did not ask the questions of the security services. They wanted to be able to stand up in Parliament and say there are no negations, no discussions, we will have no contact, whatever. But they understood that the intelligence services had a rather different role and they shouldn't ask the question because they might get the answer they didn't want. Obviously, Mrs Thatcher knew what the intelligence services were telling her But she didn't necessarily believe it. That was the problem. Well, you know, we both remember the kind of person that Mrs. Thatcher, the so-called Iron Lady, was. And she would listen to what she wanted to hear. And what she wanted to hear was not what she was hearing from the intelligence services and senior ranks within the British military. So I think what she did is is that she, she blanked them out. She just she ignored them because she above all, was a conviction politician. And her conviction was that the IRA were you know, murdering terrorists beyond the pale with whom there could be no negotiation, no compromise, hence her stand on the hunger strike, which in the end rebounded that it was thought at the time when the hunger strike was over that the IRA, the protesting prisoners, had been defeated by government, by Mrs Thatcher, the Iron Lady, But as it turned out, the opposite was the case when you look at the rise of Sinn Féin. But that's all part of the story in the book. 
Can we then focus on the rise of Sinn Féin and the Republicans? We talked about the intelligence services being quite realistic early on about the need for a political solution. And they are listening and trying to watch and trying to assess, is there anyone in there, in Sinn Féin, IRA, who really is thinking beyond the armed struggle? When did you first get the inkling and you're the, not just saying, you are the finest reporter on Northern Ireland, and that's it, you are the definitive one. Um, when did you first get the inkling that there was a real conversation going on? Because for Jerry Adams and for Martin McGuinness, their lives were at stake. I mean, you know, if they'd made a wrong move early on, they wouldn't have survived. So how did you get a sense of the thinking that was going on that ultimately would lead to the process, and when? I can actually identify pretty clearly, Roger, because at the end of the 1980s, when there was a military stalemate, when the British realised they weren't going to defeat the IRA and the IRA realised they weren't going to defeat the British, I made a remarkable film, you may remember, called Enemies Within, in which I was given, we were given astonishing access to the H-block wings of the Mays prison and were allowed to interview without any minder whoever we wish to, be they Republican or lawyers. It was then. Could I just say there, there, by the way, you're not exaggerating. It was gobsmacking. And if anybody listening to this wants to go to YouTube and have a look, it is. What's the title, Peter? Enemies Within. Uh, well, it's, it is the most... I mean, I remember the... I thought I knew a lot about Northern Ireland, but I remember the shock of watching it. And I think a lot of people watched it on the mainland. It was revelatory. Uh, and why do you think it was so revelatory? It was revelatory because it presented the IRA, the, quote, terrorists, as they really were, which was, you know, I was going to say they're just like you and me, Roger, except we don't go around, you know, we're not prepared to kill people. But they're ordinary people who, who did what they did for a variety of reasons, not least because of what they saw happening around them, also for ideological reasons. But just going back to when did I first realise that things were happening behind the scenes? It was when I was in the prison and I made the film with the late and great Steve Hewlett, whom you know you knew as well as I did, Roger. Former editor of Panorama and many other things, yeah. A, a great producer and a terrific, terrific guy. And what would happen is that we were left to our own devices, to talk to whoever we wanted on the wings and ask whatever. There was no, no NIO minder there. But during lockdown at lunchtime, when the prison officers went off to the bar, have a, have a bite to eat, have a break from the job they were doing, the prisoners were locked up in the cells and Steve and I were locked up with them. So over a period of time, because you know we spent a couple of weeks just living in, inside the most prison, we were locked up with prisoners and in talking to them, it was quite clear that they were thinking beyond the so-called armed struggle. So this is the late, late 1980s. And when you look at that period and then you look at Operation Chiffon, which is what the book is about, but it's about much more than Chiffon. It's about the events in the 70s and 80s and 90s that led up to Operation Chiffon. And it's really about, you know, how does a democratic society, how does a democratic government or governments begin to try and resolve this appalling conflict? And really, that's the sort of story of the book. But the critical thing is the IRA had to be persuaded 
to stop killing people because you can't talk to insurgents, paramilitaries one moment at the same time as they're killing people because politically that's simply out of the question. So the evolution of the peace process really begins way back in the 1970s with Willie Whitelaw meeting the IRA at Cheney Walk and culminates in Good Friday. So it's really looking at that political arc over 30 years. But it begins in the Mace prison. Now, this conversation goes on backwards and forwards by one way or another by British government representatives, whether authorised or not. And I read a, a book last year. I wonder whether you thought it was uh, a couple of years ago. Really, it was, fa- it was fascinating. It was called perhaps Mrs. Thatcher's Spy. And it was written by someone who had been very close to the IRA leadership. And what came across to me from that book was the fact that, of course, the British had to be absolutely sure that they knew that people like Martin and McGuinness and Jerry Adams were ultimately committed to trying to find a way forward and were not simply acting tactically. Because, of course, both of those figures had to say one thing in a way to the other members of the Army Council or certain members of the Army Council who did not see the need for a political process and perhaps another to the British. So the big question for intelligence to find out in many ways was what did McGuinness in particular, I suppose, really feel? Did you, when you were confronting Martin McGuinness and talking to him, Did you ever feel you were inside his head, that you really knew in that face-to-face conversation what he was thinking? I think over a period of time, we're talking about 20 years plus, over which I knew Martin McGuinness, I got to know him. I would never say I got inside his head, but I did see, aside to Martin McGuinness, that the public outside did not see to unionists, he was the devil incarnate, which is all the more, more remarkable that he ends up sharing power with, uh, with Ian Paisley. But McGuinness was you know, a remarkable person, and, and I've said and been criticised for saying it, and I admired the journey, excuse the expression, the journey, the journey that he took. And the reason why he took that journey was because the penny finally dropped because the British have been telling McGuinness this ever since Cheney Walk in 1972, all the way through. The British had no objection to a United Ireland as such, but, and it's a huge but, it had to be a solution to which the then majority Unionists agreed, which is why McGuinness shakes hands with, with the Queen and puts his life on the line by doing so, and then even more astonishingly, dons white tie and tails and dines with Her Majesty at Windsor Castle. But he's a man who has his position uh, and can carry people with him because he has killed himself, because he has ordered killings, because he has ordered bombings, because he has ordered the killing of informers. This is a man whose, if you want to call it military credentials, are from an IRA way perspective impeccable. But... I, I, I mean, I know that. I'm aware of that, Roger. <laughs> no, I mean, this is why it's so extraordinary. I had no illusions whatsoever about Martin McGuinness. That Nelson Mandela also had a similar background. Mandela saw the light 
in the way that Martin McGuinness, in a similar way as Martin McGuinness actually saw the light. So I'm not apologising for what he was involved in in the military campaign. All I'm saying is the transformation in McGuinness, which is absolutely critical because McGuinness had got more credibility, I believe, within the Republican movement, the IRA and Sinn Féin, than Gerry Adams has. I mean, they, they both had their strengths and the combination of the two is what helped get to Good Friday. But the crucial thing was getting the ceasefire. But McGuinness, uh, as Ledgerly once said, Martin puts into words what I can't quite express. Just one briefly before we get to the final section, we talk specifically about your interview with Robert. The thing that I think is underappreciated is the two of them, Adams and McGuinness, were locked together for almost, well, 40 years anyway. And in public, at least, you couldn't put a piece of thin paper between them. I know of no political alliance, if you like, anywhere at any time, like the alliance between Adams and McGuinness. It was extraordinary. You're absolutely right. And it was that that kept the peace process from the Republican side together. And I was always you know, concerned that if the two of them split, that would split the movement. The fact that they held that relationship together, and it was genuine. They were, you know, they were very close. They were, they were friends as well as, uh, as, as comrades. Um, if that split had happened, the peace process, I don't think, would have been possible because what McGuinness did with Adams, but in particular because it was Martin McGuinness and he was regarded as such, in such high esteem by the rank and file, McGuinness had to persuade the rank and file that the end of the road, there would be a united Ireland, but it would be achieved not by killing people, but by talking and critically involving the conversation with loyalists and the unionists. That was the critical thing. When Martin McGuinness what- saw the light and then he knew what he had to do and he did it. And then the intelligence service had to make their best estimate. Are they genuine? And they had to talk to their political masters about the risks that the political masters would have to take. Crucial to it was your, in many ways, your reporting, the role of Brendan Duddy, the businessman you refer to, and then to Robert and this last meeting. Um, I mean, we've talked about the background to the priest process, and we've uh, talked about the people want to move forward, but it's fraught with a great deal of danger. Robert is then tasked to, or keeping open this line of communication, and is about to go to a crucial meeting. And then the IRA, as is there, won't. Who knows if it was authorised by McGuinness, carry out what we might well call an atrocity at Warrington, which is horrific, obviously, the death of the young boys. And Robert is told... Now, is he told... I was not clear for your programme, if I may say. Never to cancel, never talk to these people again, or simply postpone it until a better time because he's got to make a decision. Was he told to cancel it altogether, Peter? No, he was told by John Deverell, who was killed on the Mull of Kintyre, who was his MI5 boss in Northern Ireland. He was killed in the Mull of Kintyre in the helicopter crash. It was not, as it happened, not terrorist-related. Sorry, carry on. Uh, He was told by John Deverell, his MI5 boss in Northern Ireland, that the word had come down from government that after Warrington which was only three days before, there was no way that that meeting could go ahead. Robert and Deverell were forbidden to go. Um, Deverell told Robert that. 
at that moment, this is the day of the meet, the planned meeting, which had been planned anyway, way before Warrington. Robert gets a phone call from Brendan Duddy, in Robert's words, a berserk Brendan, who's saying the boys are in town, the boys being Martin McGuinness and Jerry Kelly. And Robert says, well, I can't come. We're forbidden because of Warrington. I'm sorry. And Brendan goes nuts. He said, if you don't come, Robert, it's over. Forget the peace process. Forget that all we, i.e. Brendan and Michael Oakley before him, all that we've achieved over the past two decades, you've got to come. So Robert then says to Deverell, I don't care what you say, what you're saying, I'm going. I've got to go. Goodbye. So off he goes. So he goes to a meeting that isn't supposed to take place. He goes when he's told not to go. And then at the meeting, he says, he tells McGuinness and Kelly what he is certainly not authorised to say when he says, when McGuinness says, so what are the Brits got in mind long term? He says, based, I'm paraphrasing, it's all, all in the book, a united island. The critical thing about this, Roger, and it's not re- realised by everybody, and I try to make this clear in the film, is that that Robert was seen by McGuinness and Kelly as the British government representative, which is how Michael Oatley had been presented, you know, 20 years earlier. So they believed that he was speaking on behalf of the British government. And I went to interview Jerry Kelly last month just to see what his recollection was. And he said, yeah, we believed him because he was, as far as we were concerned, the British government representative. So what he said was taken seriously by McGuinness, who's no fool, and Jerry Kelly, who also is no fool, as being genuine. And that's what has to be borne in mind. And I'm not saying in the book or in the film that Robert was the single most important person that produced the ceasefire. But I think what he did, because there was discussions of ceasefires in the maze when I was in the maze as well earlier, is that he encouraged the IRA. And so when McGuinness then goes off to speak to his commanders around the island of Ireland and the foot soldiers, and it takes a long time, which is why there was a hiatus. He's saying, I assume he's saying, look, we're on the right roads. We've been assured by the British government through his representative that the long term solution that the Brits are happy to go, not happy to go with, but will go with, is a united island. This island will be as one. So it was that that was crucial. And it was that, I think, that made Robert's place in history so important. It wasn't because of Robert that there was the Good Friday Agreement, but there would not have been the Good Friday Agreement without an IRA ceasefire. And I think Robert was important in the process that led to that. Peter Taylor, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be taking a break. Well, it's Easter, but you'll be still hearing from us, as next week there's the second part of that interview with Peter Taylor, in which I'll dig a little deeper into his experience of covering Ireland in the run-up to the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Do subscribe and support us. It's less than £2 per month. And do let us know your thoughts on our rebrand. All the details of how to get in touch, etc., are in the description of this programme. And if you didn't know already, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. 
It was a good egg production. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>